We are pleased to bring you a special episode of Your Manchester Stories. Alumnus Simon Collins is joined in conversation with fellow alumnus Professor Brian Cox and our President and Vice-Chancellor Professor Dame Nancy Rothwell discussing curiosity and collaboration in a post-coronavirus world. I'm Simon Collins. I chair the Global Leadership Board for the University, which is the body that uh, helps the university's development team with alumni relations and philanthropy and acts as a a sounding board for Nancy and uh, other members of the university. My own, uh, I graduated from the university 100 years ago in uh, economics, but um, delighted to get back involved some years later. And my initial introduction to getting back involved was in uh, in sponsoring a young undergraduate, a young undergraduate who um, super bright but would not have been able to go to university had it not been for financial assistance who's the child of a single mother and um, my wife and I sponsored her through a law degree she got a first and uh, went on to uh, get articles in a Manchester law firm and it'd be a real success and um, our involvement in philanthropy with the university went on from that to uh, to funding PhD students but I remember that first experience because it brought about a sort of humbling sense of what the university does and uh, Nancy I'm sure will we'll talk more about this at some point because the university has a very very proud record of being both academically excellent and also having um, one of the best outreach programs and access for disadvantaged students. And I don't think those two things are unnatural bedfellows at all. And they're really important to me in, in working with alumni and trying to, to back, the, um, back the efforts of philanthropy for the university. Uh, I think it can't go much further without mentioning the, uh, the dreaded coronavirus. The pandemic's had serious ramifications for the University of Manchester and the higher education sector, and we'll talk more about that. I think I can say, and on behalf of everyone who's involved in the university in any way, how proud we, we all are of students, staff, alumni, and uh, everybody involved, and civic leaders as well, in responding to the crisis, whether it's final year medical students actually sort of, um, I suppose, ab- abandoning theoretical studies and going straight into very practical studies on the NHS front line to researchers who are in the forefront of finding a vaccine, uh, to alumni and supporters who've rallied around both for a student hardship appeal, which has been fantastically successful, but also a COVID-19 research appeal. Um, so thanks to, to everyone who's already helped support that. Um, so we're delighted tonight to be joined by two of the absolute leading figures of Manchester and academia. We've got um, famed physicist and documentarist. I must admit, I'd never heard the word documentarist, but it's self-explanatory, I guess. Uh, The Royal Society's Professor for Public Engagement in Science, and of course, a working professor at uh, the University of Manchester, Brian Cox. Welcome, Brian. And we've also got the uh, University of Manchester's President and Vice-Chancellor, a neuroscientist, current co-chair of the Prime Minister's Council for Science and Technology, Professor Dame Nancy Rothwell. Nancy, um, I I think everybody's going to be worried about the state of education and worried about how Manchester and higher education generally is coping with that. Um, Can you you give us a sort of state of the nation summary of Manchester? Well, just briefly, and obviously I'm happy to come back to further questions later. 
actually remarkably well under the circumstances. I often say that I've been trying to get um, more of our teaching online so students have choices for probably five years. We did it in about five days when we went into lockdown and, and we just had a, um, a survey of students, um, several thousand students about what they found and, and the vast majority said, actually it worked really well, the staff were really good, they were there online for me. Um, we were of course left with over, over a thousand students in our residences because they couldn't go home. Uh, we managed to look after them and they're fine. Um, we closed our research labs with the exception of a huge and growing research into COVID-19. There are already a lot of people expert in this field, whether they're respiratory clinicians and scientists uh, or cardiovascular or infectious diseases uh, or immunologists. But actually a lot of the staff, including me, switch fields from neuroscience into COVID-19. Um, and so that was huge. We're obviously now planning for hopeful reopening. Uh, our labs are reopening now. Um, many of them are open with social distancing. Um, so research is getting going again. We're planning for the next academic year. We're fully expecting to be on campus. What we're doing is offering a choice for students. So students, for example, particularly if they're overseas and can't travel, they can register us. They can do the first semester online if they wish to. The lectures will be online, but we fully hope, all things going well, and there's a lot of uncertainty, that um, most will be face-to-face -face teaching in obviously more distance than usual. Um, there will be opportunities for seminars, for tutorials, all those sorts of things. We're working with the Students' Union on all the activities. Obviously, what we are very worried about, like every other British university, research-intensive university, is whether international students will be willing and able to come. And that depends on so many factors. Infection here, infection in their own country, flights, we're working with the airport, with airlines, access to visas, and we're working with the home office. Um, all of those factors um, are gonna play. And, and really, we're just facing huge uncertainty for the next academic year. But remarkable response from our staff, from our students, from our alumni, and thank you, by the way, to everybody who's contributed and, and lots and lots of people have contributed both to the COVID-19 research and to our Student Hardship Fund. I would like to just finish by saying amazing students, an awful lot of our students could not be at university either without philanthropy or without the jobs they have part time. And most of those jobs were in catering, they were in bars and they were closed. So they all lost their income. We let them off rent. We decided you didn't have to pay rent. And we said any students who have to come and are in quarantine, you'll get free rent while you're in quarantine, but a lot of them have faced a lot of hardship. So support from uh, our alumni and other donors has been incredibly valuable. Brian, you, you've done an, an enormous amount to popularize in a very positive way uh, science and science is, has sort of become top of the agenda, I think with pandemic and everyone's become an amateur virologist and all the other things that, but, but there is a, a widespread interest. But you've talked about silos developing in, in science and how that's reinforced by funding models that push people into silos and, and how that can dampen down a sort of curiosity-led approach to, to science. If, if you can see above the top of the, the sort of pandemic in the next few months, how, how's the future of science going to evolve like that? Well, um, it's, a, it's a good question. As, as, as Nancy has said, I suppose there's great uncertainty. However, and, and again, um, Nancy may want to come in here, but the, the, the government response in terms of research funding seems to me to be positive. And uh, so, so I think um, to your question, it's uh, we've we've argued for years about the the um, I suppose the 
the, the balance of funding between what you might call pure and applied research. And um, I, I don't like those terms because um, clearly the, the, the kind of <laughs> the, the blue skies view, which I think is correct, is that the accumulation of knowledge about nature is always valuable. And furthermore, because nature is so interconnected, then it's impossible to pick winners, which is, you know, in an industry, you'll know that that's a, has a tremendously bad name in terms of government funding. It's an equally bad name in science for the same reasons, but it's actually extremely difficult. And, and I was saying possible to do. And actually, interestingly, um, I do a, I make a, a radio show on, on Radio 4, which is also a BBC podcast called The Infinite Monkey Cage. And uh, l yet last, yesterday, we had Sir Paul Nurse, so the Nobel Prize winner, Paul Nurse. And we spoke about this, actually. And he pointed out that his path to the Nobel Prize, which was a, a fundamental discovery about cell division and the way that cells, which was made in yeast cells, um, and almost serendipitously, and led to the Nobel Prize and, and a great advances in cancer research and so on. One of the foundational discoveries. Uh, if he'd have asked, the, the reason he kind of liked yeast cells, one of the reasons was because he, he failed his exams. He couldn't get into university and ended up working in a brewery as a science, as, as a technician on yeast and carried that through into his research career. And ultimately, through some serendipitous thing, including throwing the sample that led to the Nobel Prize into a bin in Edinburgh in the 1970s. And then he emphasized that, that he went home and then got a bit guilty about throwing the sample in the bin and went back and pointed out that in the 70s, bins didn't get collected in Edinburgh. So it was still in the bin and then made this tremendous discovery. And it, I think it, it's kind of, a, it's a wonderfully, it's a fun tale, but it's very important that what he emphasized, and it's the same in any discipline, is that because in that case, biology is so interconnected. Research in one field on one particular organism may, that may seem to have no con contact or connection at all with another field can turn out to be absolutely foundational. And that's what I, I mean when I talk about silos. What, what I really mean is that the, the, this, the even an attempt, I think, to, to segregate uh, research funding into something that may be economically or beneficial in some way and blue skies research is bound to fail. Just one caveat, I shouldn't give you too long an answer, but it's one caveat, is of course the flip side is that, and you see it with COVID, that science is the way to answer important questions. In this case, uh, for example, can we find a vaccine? I mean, that, that's a scientific issue. And so it's perfectly right, of course, and, and sensible to direct funding into very specific and pressing areas. But it's also very important not to miss the, the yeast cells in the bin in Edinburgh. So can I just add a brief addition to this? I, I, I remembered this the other day, that after George Osborne had stood down as Chancellor uh, about a year later, Andre Geim, who of course one of our staff who won the Nobel Prize, um, asked if he'd be interviewed for an editorial for a research magazine and he was and he was interviewed actually at an event in Manchester and Andre said so why were you always so supportive of research presumably it was to build the economy and George said that was the answer I gave to my colleagues in Treasury my real belief is that a knowledge-driven economy and a knowledge-driven society is always an advanced one and that was my own heartfelt view behind it even George Osborne Interesting. Well, it's, or especially George Oswald, maybe. 
stay stay with research, Nancy, because um, you, you mentioned the the sort of strong uh, research background and foundation of the university, and, and we've had. You know, in terms of where funding's gone, the government this week has sort of funded arts and it's funded half price burgers and, and you know, lots of money seeping in. Uh, is research getting left out as part of that? What's the um, No, um, the current government said they were going to increase research uh, funding up to 2.4% of GDP, which is getting a bit closer to some of our competitors, not as close as we would like. Of course, if you're going to be cynical, you say wrong way to get there is GDP goes down as um, we face um, global economic issues but nevertheless there is a real commitment and, and in spite of the economic challenges treasuries I spoke to the other day and they said no we are still going to increase the budget for research and development so I think they are and there's also still a commitment from government to fund fundamental discovery they are also going to want to fund research that addresses real problems and, and that's fine as long as you recognize often the solution to those real problems will come from a really unexpected place so you know you can't just say right let, let, let's study um climate change and uh, really really important topic we'll put money into it and there'll be lots of things around climate change but actually a breakthrough might come through uh, a new advanced material like graphene for example which is being tested in batteries with five times the lifespan and energy storage of current ones. Now, you would never have predicted that. And there'll be loads and loads of other examples. So I actually think we have a current government that is committed to research and to universities, and they are recognising the problems that universities are going to be facing with a big loss of income. But they're also facing an economy that's needing a huge injections of cash. So uh, I guess, you know, they're trying to balance all those things out. One, one aspect I don't envy, actually, of, uh, of leadership is making those sort of societal decisions about, uh, about balancing it. So just, Brian, there's, there's something in terms of the way I see corporate leaders plan is, is, you know, crunch all the numbers, get all the evidence, do all the plans, and, and increasingly as technology has played a bigger part and, and, you know, these corporations have grown bigger, I think we kidded ourselves that we control everything, you know, everything can be sort of crunched or monetized or, or addressed in some way. And then along comes, depending on your point of view, God or Mother Nature or, or science or something, and laughs in our face and says, you know, here's something you patently weren't prepared for and can't control, and it's, it's all around the world. Um, are we still just completely at the mercy of the natural world, and do we kid ourselves too much about it? Well, um, in, in the current crisis, it's, it's, not, it's not true that it's something that we didn't see coming and can't control. Um, it's I think it's true that we didn't prepare well enough, but uh, I've been involved in discussions over the last 20 years um, about existential risk and every time it's the same list it's been about 20 years it's pandemic disease uh, asteroid threat from space and then perhaps the development of new technologies impacts of ai and so on but it's always the same risk they're always the same list and of course one of them has come along to remind us we're fortunate in a way i mean i don't want to use that word the wrong way i mean of course <laughs> we're not in a fortunate situation but in a sense that this is something that we can we have the capacity to control it will it will be solved um, either tragically because it runs through the populations or more likely i think from colleagues i've spoken to because a vaccine becomes available in the next six to twelve months or so um, so the, the the key point is that many 
that the risks that we can see um, are those so-called black swan risks in the tail. And I think, as, as many people have said, it's, it's very difficult to deal with economically because you're talking about very low probability but high impact events. It's been discussed widely. I mean, asteroid impact is another example. Um, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds like science fiction, but so did to many people, a pandemic disease. Um, and uh, so we do a bit with asteroid uh, detection. We, we try to detect all asteroids across the Earth's orbit, and we're beginning to develop the capability to deflect them should we see that one's on a collision course um, that the, they've hit before. There's a very famous example in the, the early part of the 20th century in Siberia, um, where uh, there was an airburst which flattened uh, it's many hundreds of square miles of forest. Um, now, it happened over a forest, so it didn't matter. If it happened over London or New York, it would have really mattered. So th it's another example. Um, I think ultimately, though, the, so you can prepare for the risk you know about, and we have to take them seriously and develop the capabilities in advance, and that's very difficult to do in a funding sense. Uh, but also, the only way that we can deal with um, unforeseen risk is to just widen our knowledge base and to make sure that we have the skills available in science, engineering, and so on, so that if something completely unexpected comes along, then we can have a chance of dealing with it. So you, you don't really let the human race off the hook in terms of, of identifying and managing those risks, then? It's well, the responsibility no, is with There are some things. I mean, uh, you know, it could be that if, if, a, if a, there's a comet in the sky at the moment, for example, which is visible in the morning. So if you're somewhere where the, you'll have an early morning clear sky, um, with binoculars you'll see it, it, it's almost a naked eye comet now. Um, beautiful thing. Comets are completely unpredictable, um, most of them. Some of them, like Halley's Comet, come around again, most of them are unpredictable. Now, if there was a big comet on collision course with Earth at the moment, we'd probably see it quite late and there's nothing we could do. So the universe is actually just as an aside, it's one of the, the things that surprises most people when you talk about questions such as how many intelligent civilizations might there be in, in our galaxy, so the Milky Way galaxy, around 200 billion stars, most of them with planets around them. Interesting question, how many other civilizations may there be at the moment in the galaxy? Um, it's a great surprise to many biologists and astronomers that there's even one, because life on Earth had to survive in an unbroken chain for at least three and a half billion years to deliver a civilization. And three and a half billion years of stability, given what we know about the universe, is almost unbelievable. The way that stars are variable, comets and all sorts of things, supernova explosions can... can decimate hundreds or thousands of nearby star systems. And yet on this little rock, we seem to have dodged all existential risks. I mean, of course, there's the impact that wipes out most of the dinosaurs and so on. So that these things have happened. But the fact that life on Earth has survived for three and a half billion years in this very unpredictable and violent environment that we live in, which is a galaxy, is surprising to many people. I think we're very fortunate. So, so, briefly come back to, to COVID-19 based on what Brown said. I mean, yeah, we may well get a vaccine, but actually, even if we don't, I'm sure within a year, 
will have a whole range of tools that will help us to manage uh, a pandemic. I mean, look at HIV. Uh, it was a death sentence at one time. Antivirals are now such that it's not, it's not cured, but it's so much better. We'll have ways of detecting who's at risk. We'll have early diagnostics. We'll have better treatment for people. Even from the beginning of the pandemic to now, your chances of surviving if you get COVID-19 really badly are much higher. And that's because doctors have learned so much in that time about how to manage patients just in the period of six months. Uh, and so the next six months will be even more. And that will be human ingenuity, it'll be resource, it'll be collaboration. This is a good example of an international collaboration actually, like whether Spaces or Large Hadron Collider is. Mm. Um, so I, I am reasonably optimistic, even if we don't, and, and let's face it, a vaccine isn't all or nothing. It's not a, we'll have a vaccine or we'll have no vaccine. It's quite likely we'll have a vaccine that offers some protection, maybe not full, for some time, maybe not forever. I mean, let's face it, of all the amazing achievements, eradication of smallpox was one of the greatest, and that was because of a brilliant vaccine. If we can get the same, <clears throat> coronavirus will be gone. If we can't, we'll manage it. So, so that, it's interesting because those two, those two responses leave me um, sort of... Uh, with with a new fear that I, I I didn't know about before, which is of a, a random comet sort of taking us all out. Sorry, and we don't mean to depress the you. pandemic into perspective. No, but 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 also actually, the, but both from what you said, Nancy, in terms of today and things we're doing proactively to manage and and, and sources of optimism, but also what Brian was saying about billions of years passing of relative stability. Actually, it gives it gives quite a helpful context of perspective because I think if you know if we look at it from earth altitude and contemporary view it's all very worrying and disruptive and it occupies a you know a large part of our 70 or 80 years on the planet but Brian just coming back to you I guess you know in a sort of Carl Sagan type way or is it sort of looking looking at the, the whole history of, of the world this is just going to go down as a, as a tiny little dash if at all isn't it? Uh, yeah um, I mean it's yes is the answer um, so, but I mean, I think it's, it's worth, I, I often say, going back to what I said earlier, it's worth thinking about how we invest in making it more likely that we will survive, not just for the simple reason that we want to survive. But if you take what I said earlier, um, most, I, I would say most people who think about this deeply that I speak to, would say that probably on average there's of order one civilization per galaxy at any one time so we're probably it um I, that's a guess right it might not be the case but it let's say it's a possibility that we are it now if you think about that it means that we are in a sense far more valuable than we give ourselves credit for um carl sagan you, you mentioned uh, i think it was sagan who used to call us or describe us as, as collections of atoms that can contemplate atoms that's what a human being is now that uh, is a tremendously strange thing to have happened in accord with the laws of nature that some atoms can get together so even some cells again i was speaking again to paul nurse yesterday he said one of the most remarkable things about biology maybe nancy will comment on this is not it's the origin of life is a remarkable thing but it's somehow some complicated chemistry um, but the idea that cells then get together in groups to think 
right, and, and make music and learn about the universe is almost incomprehensible. Yes, it's happened here. And I think that's not just a kind of, you know, nice thing to say and a bit of a hippie way of looking at the world. I think it should actually inform the way that we behave. And what does it suggest? It suggests that this planet, notwithstanding its physical insignificance, is perhaps valuable on a galactic scale, in a sense. And then the, the perspective that that gives you, again, go back to Sagan again, he said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. Well, perhaps in our, in our global politics, some humbling and character-building experiences might be a valuable thing for some of our leaders to consider. Can I just add to that? Because, I mean, it was Martin Rees, who was the Astronomer Royal, who said, actually, the complexity of space is enormous. But on a par with it is the complexity of the human brain, which relates to what Brown said, these atoms and cells and molecules got together. And we still have virtually no understanding of the human brain. Probably we understand our galaxy better than that. But So that's a huge unchallenged area. Thank you. Well, I think um, we, we can end optimistically that Manchester and um, particularly physics at Manchester are in great hands. So we're, we're all very pleased about that. Uh, I think the, the, the university is having a tough time at the moment. Um, the conversation for, for me has emphasised again the importance of the work that's done, uh, you know, not just in a local sense, but, but actually in a mankind type sense. Um, philanthropy enables universities to build on that and extend the research programmes and that's, uh, and also importantly, create the human environments where, where people can flourish again, at least post, uh, post pandemic. Um, so an enormous thank you to, to Brian and to Nancy for your time and your views, which were, uh, as always, uh, fascinating and inspirational. Yes, thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Brian. Bye. Thank you for listening to Your Manchester Stories. Please rate, review and subscribe or follow this podcast wherever you listen. If you are a graduate of the University of Manchester, you can connect with us at your.manchester.ac.uk. This podcast is produced by Kate Bradbury and Haley jane Sims on behalf of the Division of Development and Alumni Relations at the University of Manchester. Music for this podcast was supplied by Blue Dot Sessions.